Imagine yourself stepping into the silence of a small parlor, hazy with the smoke of incense and taking a seat at a covered table. Opposite you, an empty chair waits. Behind it, a glittering curtain hides whatever lies beyond. You sit mesmerized by the candlelight dancing in a crystal ball on the table. Time passes, but you couldn't guess how long. A mysterious woman emerges from behind the curtain and sits. She fans out a deck of cards on the table and asks you to choose ten. Ten cards that will reveal your deepest truths. And, perhaps, your future. This is frequently the image of tarot we conjure in popular culture. Tarot cards have become an almost universal symbol of the occult and divination. Despite their occult associations, mainstream bookstores frequently offer tarot decks in a wide range of themes and artistic styles. If you search for tarot on any social media platform, the popular appeal of the cards is clear. So what exactly is tarot? And where did it come from? Divination using cards, or cardomancy, now includes oracle decks of varying sizes, but the typical tarot deck consists of 78 cards. These decks are divided into the major arcana, 22 cards without suits numbered with Roman numerals from 1 to 21, with one unnumbered card, the Fool, often placed in the position of zero. The rest of the deck consists of the 56 cards of the minor arcana, divided into four suits, each featuring ten numbered cards and four court cards, page, knight, queen, and king. The traditional Italian suits are swords, cups, batons, and coins, though modern tarot decks often convert batons to wands or staves, and coins to discs or pentacles. Each suit has a variety of symbolic associations, including the four elements, seasons, astrological signs, and classes of medieval society. For example, the suit of swords represents the element of air, associated with intellect and communication. The season of spring, the astrological signs of Gemini, Libra, and Aquarius, and the medieval nobility and ruling class, those who required knowledge and strategy in order to function. The numerical values of each card are often interpreted as a journey through that particular set of ideas. The Ace of Swords might represent the beginning of intellectual discovery, the King of Swords, the culmination of understanding and clarity. Numerological associations give additional layers of meaning. For example, the number one represents unity, the creative principle, the source of all power, and the beginning. The card numbered one in the Major Arcana is, traditionally, the magician, he who creates from his will alone. The second card in the Major Arcana is the High Priestess. Two represents duality, male and female, life and death, good and evil, the balance of opposing forces. Traditional depictions of the High Priestess often show a woman between two columns, one black, the other white. Three can represent the trinity of the family, father, mother, and child. The third card of the major arcana, the empress, 
often depicts a beautiful crowned woman surrounded by symbols of love and fertility. With so much symbolic meaning, the origins of tarot are difficult to pin down to any single time and place. A plethora of myths and legends abound, crediting mysterious Egyptian Greek or Babylonian scrolls, medieval esoteric traditions, and Renaissance Italian card games, among other sources. In lieu of offering the true story of tarot and its origins, we'll explore some of the more popular theories. Just as with many other Western magical traditions, a fascination with ancient Egypt has led many to attribute the tarot to mysterious origins steeped in Egyptian magical tradition. One theory is that the Egyptian god Toth passed knowledge of pictorial divination to the ancient Egyptians in the form of hieroglyphics. Other possible origins include mystical practices among the ancient Babylonians or Chaldeans, whose scrolls contained the knowledge later incorporated into the tarot. Others locate tarot's origins in classical Greece, where in the 5th century BCE a student of the philosopher Socrates designed a table of hieroglyphs depicting the creation and history of humanity. One legend holds that the esoteric knowledge contained in the tarot came from scrolls rescued from the burning of the Library of Alexandria by the Romans in the 1st century BCE. In one version of this story, a group of priests carried these rescued scrolls to monasteries in northern Africa, where later translators captured their meaning in pictorial representations. For those looking for medieval origins, many stories locate the beginnings of the tarot in the Islamic world, either within pre-Islamic Arabian polytheistic tradition, or the mystical teachings and practices of Sufism, a mystical form of Islam originating in the late 10th century. Legend holds this knowledge was transmitted to Europe during the era of the Crusades by an exclusive society the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon, more commonly known as the Templars. A religious military order founded in 1119, the Templars rose to prominence between the First and Second Crusades, and served as the inspiration for a series of later secret magical societies in Europe, including the Rosicrucians, the Freemasons, and the Order of the Golden Dawn. Despite these mystical explanations for the origins of tarot, most historians look to Renaissance Italy, which introduced a series of card games to Europe that used the 78-card deck now associated with tarot. By the 14th and 15th centuries, religious authorities in Europe had begun to crack down on heretical teachings and ideas, including magical teachings and divination. Due to the increased pressure to hide such knowledge, Legend holds that some practitioners in Spain and Italy concealed esoteric wisdom in the form of playing cards. This theory points to Italian tarocchi games as the precursor to the modern tarot. These games are usually trick-taking games like hearts or bridge, with the aim being to accumulate as many points as possible from the cards taken. The 22 cards now associated with the major arcana served as triumphi, or trump cards. These tarocchi decks were probably first commissioned by two dukes of Milan, Filippo Maria Visconti and his successor, Francesco Sforza. For this reason, they're called Visconti Sforza decks. 
These decks are mainly prized for the beauty of their design, which can include precious materials like silver and gold. The Visconti Sforza decks often depicted members of these noble families, and so offer a glimpse into the lives of the Renaissance Italian nobility. The fifteen or so decks that have survived from the middle of the 15th century are largely incomplete, and are currently held in museums, libraries, and personal collections as rare and fragile works of art. During the French occupation of Milan in the late 15th century, French troops and nobility picked up tarot games and brought them back to France, where artists developed the Tarot de Marseille. It was a French pastor, Antoine Cour de Gebelin, who created the idea that the images in tarot cards, especially the trump cards, had occult meanings. He asserted this in an essay, part of a multi-volume work that bears the formidable title of The Primitive World Analyzed and Compared Against the Modern World, Considering Various Subjects of History, Heraldry, Money, Games, Circumnavigating Voyages of the Phoenicians, American Languages, and more, published in a series starting in 1773. In his essay, he explains that the cards originated in Egypt, and that the 22 trump cards in particular contained profound Kabbalistic meanings, corresponding with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. If we intended to announce that there exists contemporarily a work of the ancient Egyptians, one of their books which escaped the flames, which devoured their superb libraries, and which contained their purest doctrine on interesting subjects, everyone will be, no doubt, compelled to know such a precious and extraordinary book. Such an Egyptian book exists. This book is the Game of Tarot. This essay will be followed by a dissertation establishing how to apply the game to the art of divination and the Egyptian principles used in the art of divination with cards, principles of which only a few vestiges subsist in our French game of cards, but with infinitely less influence. It is time to rediscover the allegories the tarot was destined to preserve and demonstrate to the wisest people, even in their games, were entrenched in allegories, and these scholars knew how to distill the most useful knowledge into a simple, entertaining game. Jebelin's essay became the foundation of modern interpretations and the use of the tarot in divination and other occult practices. It follows, then, that one of the most famous early tarot readers should be a contemporary of Jebelin, a fellow French citizen named Marie-Anne Lenormand. As celebrities go, Lenormand suffered an unpromising beginning. Orphaned at the age of five, she attended a convent school in Normandy before making her way to Paris in 1786 at the age of 14. While there, she learned to read tarot and embarked on a career that spanned more than 40 years. During that time, she claimed to have given readings and advice to such prominent figures as the French revolutionary leaders Jean-Paul Marat, Louis-Antoine de Saint-Just, and Maximilien Robespierre as well as Tsar Alexander I of Russia. A royalist, Lenormand engaged early in her career in a plot to release the captured queen Marie Antoinette from prison. The plan failed, 
and Lenormand was imprisoned herself. While there, she met a young woman who was concerned about her own future. Rose, as the woman was known, was the wife of a French aristocrat who had been arrested in the midst of the Reign of Terror for being an enemy of the Revolution. Rose herself had been arrested just a few days later, and she feared for her life. Lenormand told Rose that her husband would die, but that she would escape. She would soon remarry, this time a soldier, who would elevate her to an even higher position. Rose's husband was, unfortunately, guillotined. But before Rose could be executed, Robespierre was tried and executed himself, and the terror ended. Rose and Lenormand were released, and Rose did, in fact, marry a soldier who raised her to new heights. Her new husband was Napoleon Bonaparte, who crowned Rose, whom he preferred to call Josephine, the Empress of France. Empress Josephine continued to rely on Lenormand's fortune-telling, and from her position of influence, Lenormand became one of the first to popularize the art of cardomancy, using cards as a tool to foresee the future. Lenormand died in 1843 at the age of 71. At the time of her death, she had amassed a fortune of 500,000 francs. Her only heir was a devout Catholic nephew, who burned all of her occult paraphernalia, but made sure he took the money. In her honor, several cardomancy decks bearing her name were developed and published, including a deck of 36 cards, still produced and sold today, called Le Petit Lenormand. Among tarot decks, the most iconic and the most frequently imitated is the Waite-Smith deck, first published in 1909. The cards were first conceived by Arthur Edward Waite, an American-born scholar of occult and esoteric traditions living in London. Over the course of his life, Waite belonged to several of Victorian Britain's most prominent occult societies, including the Order of the Golden Dawn, the Freemasons, and the Rosicrucians. In the first decade of the 20th century, during a series of political schisms within the Order of the Golden Dawn, Waite found himself in opposition to the famed magician Alistair Crowley. In a magazine piece, Crowley referred to his rival as Dead Waite. It's quite possible that he made an enemy of another contemporary writer as well. In his short story, The Thing on the Doorstep, horror writer H.P. Lovecraft features a villainous wizard named Ephraim Waite. Despite his rivalries with other occult scholars, Waite's work was generally well-received. He wrote extensively on ceremonial magic, Kabbalism, alchemy, and divination. He is best remembered, however, for his role in creating a truly iconic tarot deck. He recognized the growing popularity of tarot, but lamented the difficulty in finding decks. He decided to design one to be published widely. Waite combined the principles of Kabbalistic symbolism, numerology, archetypal imagery, astrology, alchemy, and other esoteric disciplines to create a series of written descriptions of each of the 78 cards of the tarot. He was not an artist, however, and would need help to bring his vision to life. Help came in the form of Pamela Coleman-Smith, 
called Pixie by her friends, who had already established a promising career as an artist in London, when her friend, the poet William Butler Yeats, introduced her to the Order of the Golden Dawn. While there, she met Waite, who commissioned her to help him create his tarot deck. Smith finished the artwork for the deck in just six months, completing all 78 images between April and October of 1909. The result is a deck filled with captivating illustrations, in which each card is elegantly simple in appearance and composition, but filled with symbolic meaning. The Waite-Smith deck has since served as the artistic basis for countless modern tarot decks. In 1956, East German officials condemned psychic and card reader Charlotte Markart to 12 years imprisonment. Her crime? Incitement to war and boycott. Markart had been reading tarot and casting horoscopes for families in East Germany who planned to escape to the West, offering them encouragement and advice on the best time to leave. For a decade, Markart's neighbor, envious of her growing notoriety, had been reporting her to officials. However, they could make no case against her since she never accepted money for her divinations. She was finally arrested in 1955, after the Stasi identified various families that had met with Markart prior to escaping East Germany. She was sent to prison, but released on probation in 1962, since the construction of the Berlin Wall would make it near impossible for her to leave. Evidence presented against her at the time of her arrest included an astrological handbook that showed an alignment between Jupiter, the Sun, and the Moon, which she noted indicated a favorable horoscope for West Germany. Markart died in 1975, before the destruction of the Berlin Wall, but her astrological and cardomantic predictions proved true. By 1990, the Eastern Bloc had dissolved and the demolition of the Berlin Wall was underway. How does a simple pack of cards hold such sway over our imaginations? Their beauty inspired Renaissance artists. Their symbolism moved Wade and Smith. Their power offered encouragement and hope to families risking their lives to escape East Germany. Fans of the psychological theories of Carl Jung or the comparative literary work of Joseph Campbell might argue that there is something primal about the signs and symbols of tarot cards, something that reaches deep into the human need for storytelling for symbols and signs that help us to make sense of our experiences. The cards, especially those of the major arcana, are often described as archetypes, though what they represent is up for debate. Some say that the cards represent stages of human psychological or spiritual development. Others argue that they represent universal metaphysical truths buried in the collective unconscious. For those who believe in magic, the cards themselves hold the power to reveal truth. 
But even those who don't believe sometimes find value in the ability of signs and symbols to unlock our own intuition and reveal what we already know to be true. What is clear is that tarot cards are here to stay. There are now thousands of decks of different designs and styles and featuring imagery from a variety of sources, ranging from Art Nouveau paintings to Victorian anatomy textbooks to the films of Guillermo del Toro. As long as there are people who believe in the possibility of magic, tarot will continue to capture our imaginations. After all, it's in the cards. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review Enchanted on Apple Podcasts and help spread the word. You can subscribe to Enchanted on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Special thanks this week to Thomas Ignatius for his voice talent. Original music this week is by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with us via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcasts and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. To become a supporter, to learn more about the show, or to participate in our new Patreon rewards poll, please visit EnchantedPodcasts.net. I'm Corinne Weaven. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted.